Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Dr. Kathy McCoy. She's a professor in the Department of Physiology and Pharmacology at University of Calgary. Uh, She's also scientific director of the International Microbiome Center. Uh, Long history of working with the microbiome and uh, studying host microbial interactions. So, Kathy, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thanks for inviting me. If you would, tell me about your current research. What are you looking at? So um, my research has, uh, for quite some time now, really been focused on trying to understand the interactions between the microbiome and the immune system. The latest study uh, that we just recently published was really trying to understand how the gut microbes could possibly play a role in influencing or regulating the efficacy of immune checkpoint blockade therapy or cancer immunotherapy. So uh, what we found, so um, it's been known now for um, a few years now that it seems that the microbiome that people have um, is associated with with their response to their cancer immunotherapy. So they have been finding that some microbes seem to be associated or found in people that respond well to cancer immunotherapy and other microbes are, um, are missing, those microbes are missing if the cancer immunotherapy does not work so well. But what was really not understood was how could this be, what was the underlying mechanism by which the microbes in your gut could you know, influence how well your immune response is gonna to respond to um, immunotherapy. Well, when you talk about the microbe, the microbes, and the microbiome, you know, if I have a particular kind of cancer, um, I guess they would be local, you know, microbiome, you know, tumor specific. I've, and the reason why I say this is, you know, I spoke to a, a researcher that was looking at pancreatic tumors, and they had a distinct microbiome, a local one, versus the rest of the pancreas. So I can understand that we'd see probably changes in the gut for sure with different cancers, but do you correlate them with the local microbiome of where the tumors are or where metastases are as well? No, that's a very good question. So um, what we found in our study is we, our study started out by looking at colorectal cancer and which is of course the the tumors are, are in the intestine in the gut. So it is, you know, really associated to the environment where all the microbes are present. And we then isolated bacteria that were associated to tumors that were undergoing cancer immunotherapy. Um, And we compared that to the bacteria that were present that were associated with the tumors that were not um, being treated with cancer immunotherapy. And we found that there was a difference. But what's one of the really interesting aspects of our study was that we then looked at those microbes and we we did studies where we took germ-free mice 
um, that have no microbes whatsoever. And we gave, um, we chose five of those bacteria that were differentially found in tumors treated or not treated with immunotherapy. And we put each of those bacteria into a germ-free animal by itself. So there's only one bacteria present in that animal. And then we gave the animal a tumor and the tumors that they got were not colorectal cancer tumors. They were tumors that were found at distal sites. So systemic sites on the body. And we found that even in those situations, if that bacteria was found in the gut of the animal, it had effect on cancer immunotherapy, even when the tumor was far, far away from the gut. And we looked really hard to see if those bacteria made it to the tumors. And it still had an effect, even though the tumors had no bacteria present. So in humans, well, we know that many cancers have a tumor associated microbiota, and we think that that's very important in those tumors. But there are other tumors that don't have bacteria directly associated with the tumor. And gut bacteria even then can have an effect on the therapy to those types of tumors. Yeah, I'm sure they do. Do you know of anyone that's, uh, you know, in a person or a rat or mouse, have they been able to sample the gut bacteria and at the same time look at the main tumor bacteria and the metastases bacteria and look for associations or correlations? Um, so, um, yes, people, there, there's been several studies in, in, in humans that have looked at the gut microbiota and also the tumor-associated microbiota. And, you know, they can look very different. Uh, and it's possible, you know, that the tumor-associated microbiota may have has a stronger, more direct role in the tumor. But it's also possible that they're just, they're, they're, can be two very different things because the bacteria that's present in your gut, um, you know, as it um, undergoes its own metabolism, it makes small molecules or metabolites. And these small molecules can penetrate into the body. And they, they could be the active molecule that is um, affecting, either affecting the tumor directly or affecting the immune cells that you need to combat the tumor. So the tumor-associated microbiota or bacteria is probably very important, but there are other pathways where the bacteria in your gut can still have an impact on tumors that don't have its own, their own tumor-associated bacteria. Um, and I don't know of many studies that have looked directly at uh, tumors that have metastasized to other sites. Well, so what do you think is the interaction between gut bacteria and any given tumor? So, or are you more looking at, okay, these certain bacteria show up when we have uh, cancer, these don't? So it, um, what, what it could really be, and what we found in our study, is that different bacteria make different metabolites or small molecules. Now, these small molecules, so one thing about cancer immunotherapy that we found is the anti-CTLA-4 or the anti-PD-1 immunotherapy that people get to treat uh, their cancers can have a toxic effect on the gut lining. And that changes the gut permeability. So some of these metabolites are able to better penetrate into systemic sites. And now those metabolites may have an effect directly on the tumor cells, 
although we did not find that in our study at all. What we found is that, is that one of these metabolites called inosine actually binds to a receptor that is present on T cells. And when it binds, it, initi it initiates a signaling cascade through a specific receptor called the adenosine A2A receptor. And it starts a signal, ca a signal transduction cascade that, uh, that basically starts that T cell to become uh, an effector T cell that can basically turn on an anti-tumor response. So it turns it into a, um, an effector T cell that makes a cytokine called interferon gamma that is necessary for the immune cells to attack the tumor cells. So without this metabolite, the immunotherapy is not able to drive this response in the T cell and the metabolite coming from the, your gut bacteria kickstarts that process and makes those T cells now available to get turned on more by the immunotherapy. What kind of metabolites are these? Are these occurring just in natural mice or people? Or is it a, like an altered form of the metabolite that you're observing? No, what we're finding is, so what we found was a specific metabolite called inosine that is made by some members of the, the normal commensal gut bacteria. And it does, it's not made by all members of the bacteria. Um, so we're trying to find... Uh, which bacteria make this, this metabolite, a small molecule. And it does not seem to be an altered um, form. It's the natural uh, metabolite that bacteria make. But it's possible that depending on what bacteria you have in your gut, if you don't have a high number of these inosine-producing um, bacteria, then, then you're not going to respond as well to immunotherapy. So maybe we can have a microbial therapy that gives you more of these bacteria that make this metabolite to help to kickstart your immune system so that it better responds to immunotherapy. Now, we, we identified one of these molecules called inosine, um, but we believe there are probably um, many other metabolites that also be, may be playing a, a similar type role, especially metabolites... Um, as this one molecule inosine gets broken down, there are sort of breakdown products of that. And some of those can also bind to this the same receptor. And so they also can to trigger this signaling cascade and turn on, the, turn on your immune cells to be able to attack your tumor. So um, what does this tell you about normal function? Does it tell you that there's always this interplay between our uh, microbiome and our cells and they're feeding each other, you know, us feeding them sugars, them feeding us metabolites, et cetera. And this also, uh, I mean, not, maybe not directly influences the immune system, but it allows our cells to interact with our immune system or like, what does this tell you about a healthy person? Uh, it, um, it tells you that there is, there's actually constant, constant crosstalk and, and communication between the microbes in your gut and you as the host. To these microbes um, and there we've known for a long time that there's many ways that the the microbiome speaks to the host and i i um, focus my studies really on the immune system so i'm really looking at this crosstalk or this um, two-way communication between the microbiome and the immune system now one of the questions we've had a long time is how does this communication take place you know maybe what's the language that the microbes in your gut can speak to your immune system. And 
really what we know is that one part of this language is through these small molecules. Bacteria in your gut are always, they're undergoing metabolism, they're proliferating, they're dividing, and they're fermenting the foods that you eat. And during their metabolism, they make molecules. And, and many of these small molecules can um, feed other bacteria in the gut. So you have this, you have a community in your gut, you have an ecosystem. And these small molecules also, because they're small molecules, they're much easier able to bypass the barriers you have in your gut to reach the immune system or even further along. So the mucosal immune system or the systemic immune system. Because the live microbes, we, your body really tries to set up barriers to stop these live microbes from entering your body. Otherwise, you would have an inflammatory reaction. But these small molecules, they can go through the mucus layer, they can by, you know, go through the epithelial cells in the lining of your gut. And that's kind of like the communication. That's happening all the time in everybody from the moment you were born um, throughout your life. Now, this conversation is going to change depending on what microbes you have in your gut and which microbes live in closer proximity to your intestinal wall or your epithelial cells. Those ones maybe have a, a stronger conversation with your immune system than other ones that, are, you know, that live maybe more in the lumen of, of your gut. And what we discovered was, so we've known that there's a microbial immune conversation for a long time and what we discovered was there's a three-way conversation as well which is the microbes a metabolite and your immune system and this this three-way conversation seems to get further activated by cancer immunotherapy oh by cancer immunotherapy or by chemotherapy this was cancer immunotherapy it seems to me like our microbiome is kind of like a job center what I mean by that is, you know, there's metabolites that need to be made. Someone's got to make it. But there's also a redundancy of function amongst bacteria. So it's not like only E. coli 432 can make it, but various different types can. Do you observe that in, in regards to these metabolites? Like, is it always the same uh, strain of bacteria that's making a given metabolite? Or are there other ones that can make the same one? If you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. No, you're, you're exactly right. There's definitely um, a redundancy of function in your gut. And, um, you know, the, the microbes that you have or the bacteria that you have living in your gut, you know, we have a very complex community. And the microbes that you have in your gut are not going to be the same microbes that I have in my gut. You know, we live in different places. We have a different lifestyle. We eat different foods. Now, we wouldn't want it to be only one microbe can, can drive, you know, the most important thing to drive your immune system. So you have lots, you probably have a lot of different microbes that have a similar genetic, uh, you know, um, gene, gene function that can make really these important uh, metabolites. We identified about three different bacterial species that can make this metabolite that we studied in detail, inosine. And now we're trying to screen to see how many other ones can make these. So it's really, yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of redundancy of function. And that's probably good because if you, you know, change your, your microbiota, you take antibiotics, you don't want to, you know, wipe out, you know, one incredibly important pathway.
but having said that, we do believe that there are probably what we call keystone taxa. So some quite important microbes that make a metabolite or give you some sort of signal that maybe there's less redundancy of those, of those genetic pathways or that function. So maybe fewer microbes can give you that sort of keystone function um, compared to others. So it's a combination, and you probably need a high diverse microbiota to be sure that some of these really keystone taxa are going to be present. Interesting. Um, does anyone have a sense of the major metabolites that uh, people's bacteria produce in their guts? Um, that's an that's area of research that is really taking off uh, over the past years. And so we're studying a lot of metabolomics and trying to really look at all of these different metabolites. So there's been some really key studies sort of looking at the, these, some of these key metabolites. So there are the ones that have been studied probably the most so far are short-chain fatty acids. So they, there are many bacteria that make a variety of short-chain fatty acids, um, which are specifically butyrate, acetate, propionate, and they, um, butyrate is really kind of the poster child of metabolites. It's really the one that's been studied a lot. And there are a whole range of different functions that butyrate does on the host. For one thing, it's sort of a carbon source for your gut epithelial cells. It keeps your gut lining healthy. Um, it helps to maintain a good barrier in your gut. But it also has effects on T cells, on induction of regulatory T cells. It affects um, B cells. It affects antibody production. It can affect cells in the bone marrow. So it, it's really one of those metabolites that have been very, very well studied. The other ones, acetate and propionate, they also have huge effects on the immune system. Secondary bile acids, you, you need your microbiota to conjugate the primary bile acids to make the secondary bile acids. And we know they're very important for your health. They have a lot of pathways they're involved with. And now more and more and more metabolites are coming out that... Um, are very important that are, you know, ligands for a lot of immune receptors on specific immune cells. And so one of these ones that we now identified is this one called inosine. Now, it's also important to know that um, there are a lot of metabolites that the bacteria make that your body can also make. So there's bacterial derived metabolites and host derived metabolites. So sometimes it's difficult to um, really disassociate the two of those. So is, if you see an increase in a certain metabolite that could maybe be made by both, was it the microbial-derived metabolite that is driving the effect? Or could it be that the microbiota is somehow activating host cells to make more of this metabolite? A good example of that is lactate. There's D-lactate and L-lactate. Um, one of them is made by the host and one of them is made by the bacteria and, and um, lactate is, is uh, very important in the immune system as well. Do we have any sense of how much of a given metabolite is made, let's say in a 24 hour cycle, you know, all these ones you mentioned. And mm -hmm. then if we knew that and also the ratios, then when we consider dysbiosis or we consider, uh, you know, what's going on, we may be able to say, okay, well, all the metabolites are still being made, but now 
this particular short chain fatty acid is is predominating or there's a lot less of it and maybe in that way we get more information from metabolomics we'd see instead of like you know everyone just talks about diversity are oh, healthier guts are more diverse well maybe if you look at it from a metabolic perspective that would give us a lot more information because that's somewhat species independent you know exactly yeah and that's that's exactly where research is is trying to go um you know for a long time we've been studying who is there what bacteria are there and we started out by doing this by you know looking at sequencing the bacteria based on 16s um rna gene content and then you know trying to identify diversity from that and now we've moved to uh, shotgun metagenomic sequencing where we really can sequence all of the DNA that is there and get a better idea of diversity down to the species and strain level. But the good thing about shotgun metagenomics is it also gives you full gene content. So now from shotgun metagenomics, you can start to infer function because you can, you, you can see all the, the potential function of those bugs because of the genes that that you're carrying so that's sort of the first step to have so not just looking at what's there but their potential function in terms of their gene content and now what we're trying to lay on top of that is really the readout of the metabolomics so what metabolites are truly there it's um it's complex because it's very um diverse and and you know, reading out those metabolites in the stool versus in, you know, peripheral blood or in the urine, you may find quite different proportions depending on how your body um, secretes them or utilizes them in terms of its function. So it's, but it's definitely where research is going now to, to look at who is there, what potential function of those bacteria is there because of their gene contact, content, and what's really going on in terms of their metabolomics, what metabolites are really being produced uh, in real time, and then putting those together. And that we really hope will give us more clarity on, like you say, what does really dysbiosis mean? Well, just to make it even more fun, what about phageomics? There is such yeah. a thing. You know, is yeah. there a way with shotgun sequencing to look at the phageome and characterize that yes. with dysbiosis? Yes, I mean, you really the thing about shotgun metagenomics is you are looking at the gene context. So you can also look at the full metagenome. So normally, you know, we focus a lot on bacteria, but we, we realize, of course, that there are more microbes in your body um, than just bacteria. And, you know, the biggest area that is very exciting now is, is like you say, is, is the phage. And so metagenomic, if it's done properly um, or a certain way, can also tell you the content of the phage. Um, but you have to be aware of what you're going to look for before you start the study because there's some technical aspects you have to do right in order to capture the, you know, what bacteria is there and what the, the virome, uh, the bacteriophage presence as well. But yes, that's, that's a whole another level that's also incredibly interesting and important. Is anyone building up a library? I mean, I know it, it would be tough, but like, you know, E. coli, does anyone have a library of, I don't know, the, the common variations of it, 
the common phages that affect it, the common metabolites it makes. And I know, depending on the context, all of this can change. But if someone was building these libraries, at least, of very specific contexts and, and species, I don't know, it might be useful when you're looking at things and you get a whole mess of stuff. Yeah, I mean, yes, people are. In fact, um, several years ago, you know, several researchers really tried to bring back the idea of culture omics because, you know, really sequencing and our ability to sequence the microbiome really started to take off with, you know, next generation sequencing. And so you could really do a lot of in-depth sequencing to find out what is there. And the idea was really, oh, we can sequence all these bugs, we can see what's there because, you know, more than 80% of your microbes are not culturable. But now we, now there are more and more researchers that are kind of going back to basic microbiology and it, you know, are these microbes really not culturable or do we just not know how to culture them? And so more and more groups are really trying to make libraries of different bacterial species and bacterial strains. And, and that's an area that we really need to, to work hard at because like you say, there are variations of different, you know, even the same bacteria with different strains could have quite drastic um, differences in function. And so we need, we need these um, libraries of microbial banks of, uh, of all the different types of bacteria. We, we need to be able to culture them and we need much better full genome sequencing. So we need better um, reference libraries of all of the different bacterial species or, and bacterial strains. Uh, because a lot of the sequencing that's done now we have to compare to a reference library. So a lot of bacteria don't have a full genome sequence on them. And once we get more of these banks of bacteria, uh, different bacterial species and strains, and, and also phage, and we'll have a better handle on you know, reference sequence libraries and, and how we can really um, understand the function of all of these different bacteria in this big community that we have in our gut. So the, yeah, we, we need more culture omics going on top of metabolomics on top of metagenomics. You need all the omics. We need all the omics, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then we need to figure out how to put it all together and understand it. Well, I mean, this is a very different take, but you know, if you shrunk yourself down and you were inside like the gut, you know, someone's gut, and you're you know about the size of a bacteria, like what do you what do you think you would see and experience? Like how if there's such a, you know, I guess part of my French a shitstorm of things going on, how does any bacteria you think process and survive in that environment? Like, what, what do you imagine is, uh, it's like if you're on that level? Yeah, I mean, I think we always have to remember that um, our bacteria, they, you know, environment is everything. So bacteria are going to live and they're going to thrive in an environment that is right for them. So, you know, if you think about it in your gut, it's not just one, probably, it's not just big one soup, you know, with, you know, hundreds of different bacterial species. The, the, those bacteria that live together and, you know, feed off each other or live together in a good community are going to be, you know, living together. We have bacteria that thrive much better in the mucus layer of, of the large intestine because that's, you know, it provides them the nutrients that, they have the genes to 
to metabolize the best. And so the gut, if you were a bacteria living in there, you're going to go where your gene function, your metabolism suits you best. So you, you want to go somewhere that you don't have to fight tooth and nail for all of your nutrients. You're going to go somewhere where, you know, maybe there's another bacteria or neighbor who likes, you know, makes something that they think is waste, but you think is food. Um, and you, you, you want to go where, yeah, that you can thrive and, and proliferate and maintain yourself. So, you know, the small intestine and the colon, they're very, very differences in, in environment. So the food that you eat, your diet and the environment says everything. So I think one thing that researchers really uh, have, to, have to understand and think about all the time is, uh, for one thing, if you just take your, the feces and look at what's there, that may not be a very good reflection of all of the, the different micro environments you have in, in your gut, in the small intestine and the lumen versus the, the mucus and how much the immune system um, impacts on that, you know, what's there. The small intestine, your immune system really tries to keep the bacterial load down more because we don't want to compete with our bacteria for our food. And you have a less of a barrier in your small intestine. So because you want to, you know, um, you want to absorb the nutrients from your food. So there's all kinds of harsh environments. And, you know, I think a bacteria is going to try to find the, the neighborhood that's best suited for for its metabolism and what type of food it likes to make or, or if it can ferment fiber or you know where it's going to live so it's going to be multicultural so so you know it's going to be a diverse environment but there's going to be little pockets of little um communities well also too in terms of like the 3d structure of the microbiome in a given area I would think that most of the bacteria are not just freewheeling, but they're in films and biofilms. Absolutely. Has anyone studied, you know, if I've got a biofilm of, I don't know, you know 10,000 bacteria, what's the biofilm look like? Are there different parts of the biofilm that now differentiate function, you know, and, and the gene expression of some change? And, you know, yeah. what if uh, multiple, multiple different species now take a residence in a biofilm and you make this complex structure and, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's just craziness. I wonder how it really is in there. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think biofilms in the gut, um, also the tumors, um, you know, biofilms are very, very important. And, you know, like, yeah, like you say, most bacteria are not just living, you know, freewheeling like you would in a culture, you know, liquid culture. It, you know, it's much more complex than that. So you do, you have a lot of biofilms and you have food in there and you have, you know, mucus layers and, and uh, biofilm formation and stability um, is going to be very, is, is very, very important in terms of function. Even uh, we did this experiment several years ago where we even, we took a germ-free mouse and we gave it just two different bacteria. And we, we looked at the, the um, expression of uh, genes, so transcriptomics of of those two bacteria, whether they were living in the lumen of the gut or they're living in the mucus layer. And, and, you know, so one of them was an E. coli. If you took, if you looked at the function of the E. coli and what it was metabolizing and the, you know, the genes that it was expressing in the lumen was completely different than that found in when it was in the mucus. So, you know, you're going to change, bacteria are going to change their expression of their genes depending on, on 
where they're living and, you know, turn on those genes that are going to allow it to thrive. And they're going to take every little, you know, every little um, benefit that they have genetically to thrive in different environments. And biofilms is one of those environments that really will um, uh, enable those bacteria to thrive in an environment to push out those bacteria that cannot thrive. How do you even know how to study this without freaking out? And then also <laughs> with, uh, you know, because of the complexity. And also, you know, when you do experimentation, how do you know that your experiment is good and it's actually going to give you some actionable information? Like, how do you, how do you handle that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a very good question. So my lab, I have utilized trying to simplify the experimental systems. So, you know, the way my lab um, functions, my way I do research is, you know, we, we try to look at the human situation and, for example, with the disease or, um, and try to understand, you know, what does the bacteria or the microbiome look like in this situation? And then we try to take that information and model it in more simplified systems. So I, I typically take a germ-free animal that has absolutely no microbes whatsoever. And then I try to specifically add back either one bacteria at a time or simplified communities and slowly increase the complexity of it and then and try to look at all the omics for example so look looking at the what bacteria are present the metabolomics you know in the gut but also at systemic sites and look at really specific questions on the immune system how the single bacteria or as you increase complexity, how that changes the immune system or the body organ. So my lab has really, you know, um, tried to um, simplify the system so we can really ask a question and look for mechanism. Now, the challenge is, of course, taking that, all of that information and then translating that back to humans to say, okay, we've learned this. For example, if we think about our our cancer study that we found these we found three bacteria and one metabolite that were able to in animal models really increase the efficacy of an checkpoint blockade so this is the, really one of the first times that we really have mechanistic understanding of all the players that that are that are working now the challenge is to take that information and go back to humans to say oh can we now use this information and can we derive microbial therapeutics to aid humans to, to have um, better responses to cancer immunotherapy? You know, that's the biggest challenge for me. Uh, I can look at the human data and, and come up with a, hypo a testable hypothesis, go into animal models, try to define mechanism. The challenge is then going back to humans and say, can we now take this understanding of the microbiome and can we harness it this power of the microbiome to really shape the host and can we translate that to, to human therapies? And for me, that's the exciting part now to say, wow, we've discovered this uh, amazing power of the microbiome and we're, we're, we're defining exactly how the microbiome speaks to the immune system and what situations uh, we could maybe use this. Now let's go back to humans, which are of course more complex and, you know, uh, are going to be more broad responses and translate that back. So, yeah, I think it's a complex system, but I, I've always found if we can simplify it and really ask testable questions, 
And then we can build back up the complexity in terms of uh, a type of therapy. Yeah, I know this um, kind of out of left field, but as you were talking, I was wondering if anyone's created like a, a suppository of important metabolites for a person, you know, like a, you know, a suppository that has short chain fatty acids and, and other things that come from a healthy gut. And I wonder if you did that, if that would, uh, what that would do, if that would help a person. Yeah, I mean, I don't think uh, anybody has made, you know, a suppository yet. It is, people have treated like with one of the short chain fatty acids, butyrate. You can't really give it orally because it doesn't make it down to the colon where it needs to work. But as a suppository, some people have shown it can have some function. Um, but um, a suppository with multiple metabolites in it hasn't really been developed yet. Um, but that, that is an area that people are trying to, to develop. Uh, we showed in our study that we can bypass the need for the bacteria and give inosine by itself, either orally or injecting it. And the only caveat of that is that we know that this metabolite we found has a really important role, is context dependent. So it's not as simple as giving a metabolite. We know there's a second signal, some sort of costumatory signal that also has to be present that it seems the bacteria are, are giving. And so that's the thing about just giving a small molecule or metabolite. Many of the effects of it are probably going to be context dependent. And maybe just giving that metabolite by itself, if the other things are not in the right, you know, if your immune system is not ready to receive it or not activated for it, or you can't uh, absorb it. I think the system is maybe more complex and you have to sort of look at other things that are involved in that metabolite having an effect. But maybe not. Yeah. Maybe, maybe sometimes one metabolite is just going to uh, work wonders. Yeah, or maybe you have a multi-metabolite enema, you yeah. know, or like a lavage or something that helps. I don't know. I guess it opens up all kinds of possibilities with what you're learning. So it's really cool. Yeah. I think, that, I think that's the most exciting thing is um, that I think we're going to really be able to go forward and translate a lot of the findings that, that are coming out now in the microbiome field to... Uh, develop microbial therapeutics, whether that's based on bacteria or based on the metabolites they produce. Um, I, I think we're getting much, much closer to be, to be able to really translate that to, you know, not just treat disease, but, you know, my dream is that we could really understand what's going on every day and that we could use this information to prevent diseases, you know, before they happen in individuals that are or, you know, genetically susceptible for two types of diseases. So, you know, we want to use this information to treat disease, either through bacterial therapy, and metabolite therapy. Uh, but, you know, once we get a better understanding of diet and prebiotics and stuff, you know, we can use this also to prevent disease, I think, and, you know, try to drive a healthier society. Yeah, definitely. Well, Kathy, very good. Thank you for coming. What, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Um, they can Google my name, Kathy McCoy. Uh, I have my lab has a website. I think it's McCoyLab.com. Yeah, and from there you'll see links to my work and to publications. Very good, Kathy. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Richard. It was really nice to talk to you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.